Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Ontario is formulating a plan to help people who have long COVID. When it comes to gender parity in politics, Canada has some work to do. Paul and Shona swing on by to talk about some hot topics on the roundtable. The Telling Tales Children's Festival returns to an in-person event this weekend. Happy 150th to the Caledonia Fair and find out some interesting facts about the Queen. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. President, first Detroit auto show in three years. Yeah. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's But the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing, and I think this is a perfect example of it. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Thanks for waking up with us each and every day. Rick Samprin with you. That is the voice of U.S. President Joe Biden in discussion with Keith Pelley on 60 Minutes this past Sunday. And that certainly made some waves as the president declared the pandemic over. Meantime, Ontario's top doctor says a plan is in the works to deal with long COVID. So while the pandemic for some, maybe over. For others, it certainly is not as they continue to battle symptoms long after their initial positive test. Dr. Kieran Quinn is a general internist and palliative care physician at Mount Sinai and Bridgepoint Hospitals. He's also a health services researcher with an interest in palliative care for people with non-cancer illnesses. And he's our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Quinn, good morning. How are you? Morning, Rick. Very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on your show today. I do want to ask you about the president's comments in a couple of minutes, but I do want to start with long COVID. Maybe we'll start at it this way. How is long COVID going to be defined, or does it have a definition right now that officials can work with? There are two working definitions for long COVID, or what we also call the post-COVID condition. One comes from the World Health Organization and is defined as persistent symptoms three months after your initial infection with COVID or SARS-CoV-2, the virus. Um, And that is not explainable by other conditions, for example, pre-existing health conditions. In our neighbors to the south, the Center for Disease Control has a similar definition, although their timing is different. So they they talk about persistent symptoms and sequelae four weeks and beyond your initial infection. And those sequelae also include the development of new chronic health health conditions, things like heart failure. I will say the WHO, the World Health Organization, is undergoing an evolution of that definition. So I think we'll see a change in the coming months. So Ontario is more than likely going to lean towards the CDC's definition as opposed to the WHO? Um, It's actually still unclear. For now, we've adopted, both Canada and Ontario have adopted the World Health Organization's um, definition. And that's partially in the way that it was arrived at through a really large consensus group of patients and caregivers and researchers, physicians, uh, policymakers. Uh, But it's unclear whether we should include those sequelae or development of chronic health conditions as part of the definition. So I think that's still up in the air. We've talked to a couple of people on this show who've had long COVID and the symptoms do persist for weeks, if not months after their initial diagnosis, if you will, whether it's, uh, you know, tiredness or exhaustion, you know, the loss of taste, uh, you know, the symptoms go on and on. How prevalent is it in our population? Do a lot of people have long COVID? 
Um, I think there are a significant number of people who are currently suffering, and there are, are over a hundred symptoms that people have reported uh, associated with long COVID. The true prevalence or the how common this condition is, is actually still unknown. Initially, in the early phases of the pandemic, research was reporting that 50% of people approximately who were infected would develop these persistent symptoms. Thankfully, the most recent evidence suggests that in the era of really high vaccination rates, like we see in Ontario, um, in addition to variants like Omicron that are less severe than earlier variants, uh, we think that that number is much closer to between 2 and 10%. Now, there is an, a forthcoming survey, national survey from Stat Statistics Canada and the Public Health Agency of Canada that I think will give us a much clearer picture of how common this is in, uh, amongst our citizens. Um, but probably somewhere between 2 and 10%. And if we think of the fact that somewhere between 40 and 60% of Ontarians have had an infection, we're talking about millions of people who have had infections, and that translates to a lot of people who are suffering with persistent symptoms. And that could equal a lot of people seeking out health care and health care options when it comes to dealing with long COVID, which brings us to the Medical Officer of Health's comments the other day on the development of a battle plan, a game plan for how to care for this group of patients. Where do we even start in terms of applying the definition to this group of uh, people? Well, I'm, I'm really encouraged to see that the government's taking a proactive approach in trying to prepare for this, um, you know, long COVID and the impacts of it. Um, I think it's challenging for them and for all of us because we're dealing with imperfect information in the sense that the evidence and our understanding of this condition evolves on a daily basis. But we still need to be as prepared as we can be. And I, I haven't seen the government's plan yet. Um, and I look forward to seeing it. Um, but I'm, I think we need to think broadly about how to support people both in their health and their health needs, but in addition, in their uh, impacts on their ability to look after themselves, their ability to work, look after their families and look after their financial uh, needs. And I think there's some uh, other opportunities uh, for government to be planning for that. And my understanding is that they're trying to and they are. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Kieran Quinn, a general internist and palliative care physician at Mount Sinai and Bridgepoint Hospitals. Uh, we're talking about long COVID, but let's switch to U.S. President Joe Biden declaring COVID-19, the pandemic, over. Is uh, this a worrisome statement or is he partly right? I think it's a reflection of people's fatigue or, you know, exhaustion with the pandemic. And people are desperate to move on and try to get back to some element of normalcy. We... Uh, you know, I, I think we need to be very careful about ignoring the effects of COVID. Um, thankfully, acute COVID uh, seems to be less severe. Uh, there are less people dying from it, uh, thankfully, due to vaccination and, and other measures that we've taken. But I think we need to be careful not to move on too quickly and not to put it in our rearview mirrors, uh, because long COVID and recurrent waves of acute COVID are still a reality in our in our fall uh, outlook. And I think we, we still need to do the best we can to prevent infection. The, the best way to prevent long COVID is to prevent infection. And that means getting your vaccinations, wearing your masks in public indoor spaces, improving your air quality in indoor spaces, and just taking our general measures around infection control and prevention. Well said, Dr. Quinn. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for uh, your time and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Rick. And you too. Take care.
That is Dr. Kieran Quinn, general internist and palliative care physician at Bridgepoint and Mount Sinai Hospitals, also a health services researcher with an interest in palliative care for people with non-cancer illnesses. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're going to bring you details of a first-of-its-kind campaign that's been launched to show how Canada is faring with gender parity in politics. And one of the aims is to encourage political parties to step up and increase female representation at all levels of government. We're not just talking about the federal political scene, but provincial, municipal as well. Sherry Graydon is our guest. She is the CEO of Informed Opinions. Good morning, Sherry. How are you today? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Canada, uh, according to a recent study, is 60th among nearly 200 countries when it comes to equal representation of men and women in politics. It sounds like we have some work to do to get more women in the political arena. Your thoughts on uh, that statistic? Yeah, we absolutely have more work to do. I personally was shocked when I learned that stat uh, six months ago or so, and I think Many Canadians, in fact, our poll shows that um, a majority of Canadians were uh, concerned and surprised to, to realize that despite how much equality women have in this country in all sorts of arenas, we are really lagging many countries around the globe who have made this much more of a priority than we have. So how did we get to this point, and what are some of the stumbling blocks that women encounter along the way to a seat in office? Well, you know, there is a lot of recognition in Canada and around the world that women experience many aspects of life differently from men, and those realities inform our perspectives, our priorities, uh, what what we notice and care about, and the ideas that we have. And 30 years of research shows that when women participate in decision-making, whether it's at home, at work, in government, we increase innovation. Research is more reliable. Healthcare is more effective. We have happier workplaces and more stable financial markets. And I think that, that the understanding of that has increased over the last couple of decades. And although Canada has gained in the past 20 years, we've moved from 20% women in the House of Commons, for instance, to 30%. Um, other countries around the world, recognizing what I've just said, have made much more deliberate efforts to ensure that women's voices are represented at parity. And so what they have done and what we can do, it has depended on the countries, but in New Zealand, for example, and Iceland, both part, both uh, governments where women are between 47 and 49 percent, Uh, Political parties have actually embraced voluntary gender targets. So the political parties themselves have said, yeah, it's important that the people sitting in government look like and reflect the realities of the people we're seeking to serve. So we're going to go out and actively ensure that our candidate roles include as many women as men. Sherry Graydon is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, Sherry is the CEO of Informed Opinions, and we're talking about equal representation when it comes to uh, politicians. And in this country, Canada's ranked 60th in the world when it comes to this category. 
we know, and you know, this is a job that I could not do. I, I don't have the stomach for the political arena f- for a number of different reasons, but there's also an, a relatively new phenomenon when it comes to the heightened divisiveness of um, the, the political scope, uh, the social media venom that I'm sure has turned a lot of people off politician or not. Th- these two things cannot help the conversation because whether you're a man or woman or, or whatever the case is, that might not be a, a, um, a part of the world that you want to take a big bite out of. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's an increasingly uh, divisive environment and it's certainly a deterrent for many people, men and women, who, who don't want to play in that sandbox. Here's what we know, though. You know, other countries around the world have achieved parity despite not having solved that problem yet. And what's perhaps more relevant is that women's presence in Parliament helps to change the dynamic. On city council, in legislatures, when there are more women, there's less testosterone. There are fewer elbows up in the corners. It changes the tenor of the debate. It normalizes women's right to be there. It's harder for bad actors to challenge and condemn our voices. So we've also done work at Informed Opinions on the toxic hush of online hate and how women and women of color in particular are targeted in really profoundly egregious ways. So that's absolutely a problem that we need to fix. And and politicians who are actively sowing that divisiveness, they also need to step up and be accountable and and change um, their level of respect. So there are all sorts of pieces that will go into solving this problem, but we can't use that as, a, as an excuse for not making parliaments and city councils and legislatures more equitable in the first place. Uh, Informed Opinions has also launched a national balance of power campaign to close the gender gap um, by 2030. Uh, I wish you nothing the best in in achieving that and for our political parties to step up and make that a priority. Uh, we got to run, but I'm going to encourage our listeners to check out your website for more information on the balance of power campaign. Sherry, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Sherry Graydon is the CEO of Informed Opinions. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Time now for the GMH Roundtable with Paul and Shona. Good morning. How are you guys? Very well, very well. How are you? Great. Not too shabby. Yeah, let's let's start with the poll question, if you guys don't mind. And uh, I'll offer my summary of what I think was going through the Prime Minister's head in terms of whether he was being disrespectful or not. I'm voting no on this one. I don't think he was showing any disrespect. This was Saturday. This was downtime, personal time with a group of friends who were also involved in the funeral procession. I'm voting no on this one. I thought, well, hey, let his hair down. I know he got a haircut recently, but let it down. Have fun. Make it a de-stressor. He's a human being. I'm fine with it. Where do you guys sit? Paul, we'll start with you on this one. That's why I hate social media. <laughs> it's why I hate yes. social media. <laughs> uh, I'm totally fine with it. Um, anyone who's ever been in a pub in Britain knows that three things occur. Talking, singing, and fighting. Um, the Prime Minister <laughs> chose the second there. one of them. And he was singing. He was in a bar. He was, what are we, got one, we expect everybody who went to that funeral to be in tears for like the in 10 days of mourning? No, he was, he's a human being. He was living his, 
He was just doing what people do when they're in a bar or a pub. He was at a piano bar, for heaven's sakes. Is that yep. a piano bar? Nothing disrespectful at all. It would Now, it's how he acted yesterday. And yesterday he was prime ministerial. So I'm fine with it. Absolutely. Sheila? Yep. <laughs> okay. First off, I got a list here, so get ready. Uh, first <laughs> off, uh, apparently these the people, and I think this is largely bot-driven, but I think the people who might be upset about this apparently are unfamiliar with the concept of awake. Uh, second, <laughs> um, again, I think this is largely bot-driven, that, uh, that this is just the latest in, you know, let's attack Trudeau for something. And, and it's frankly ridiculous. And how many videos have there been that are very lovely and touching of members of the royal family sharing a laugh with mm-hmm. people who had gathered to mourn the queen? So is this really different? And I probably only would have been upset if he had actually sang La Bamba. <laughs> which was the yeah, intro music completely different. yeah it's, it's i I, th- I i and you know what for all the people who are actually complaining and again i think this is largely bot driven um for all the people who might be complaining you know what trudeau knew queen elizabeth better than any of them yeah absolutely and you know you mentioned the 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 queen's family as well and there was a moment that was shown on tv for all to see yesterday right after the internment um, at uh, St. Paul's Chapel, where the king, King Charles III, is having a laugh with one of the clergymen. Um, you know, whether it was just a, a relief of stress or, you know, the the, uh, the humanity of the individual. I mean, he is a human being. Yeah, we're allowed to laugh. We're allowed to cry. We're allowed to show many different emotions. Again, this was in a private setting at a bar where he and a bunch of others were having fun. Yeah, I think we're all on the same page. We're okay with this. No kidding. And, and the fact that the king was laughing and that made news is amazing. Shocking to me as well. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I, at my mother's funeral, I was in tears with laughter and not tears of crying. I was in, I, we were telling stories that were hilarious and we had some huge fun and huge laughter. That's <laughs> what people do. That's yeah. how they recover from these things. You know, yeah. enough Re- of this. Yeah, stuff. remembering the good times and celebrating the yes. good times. That's what it's all about. Yes. Hey, the Telling Tales Children's Festival returns to being an in-person event in uh, two years this coming weekend. We have Susan Jasper from Telling Tales on the show earlier today. You can go to tellingtales.org to book your spot in the festival. Which brings me to the question, Shona. We'll start with you on this one. Do you have a favorite book of all time? I know you read a lot of books. Is there a favorite at the top of the list? Um, Are you talking specifically children's books or, or just my favorite book? Favorite book in general? Okay, the one I learned the most from, The Autobiography of Malcolm X. Oh, wow. Yeah, he had a good story to tell, that's for sure. It is fascinating. It's a difficult book for a white person to read, to be perfectly honest, but it's a very important book. Excellent. Paul, what's at the top of your list? Well, I guess I went the wrong way. I've, I've got Winnie the Pooh, but I was, I was going on children's books. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, I'm along your same wavelength. I'll get to mine no, in a second. My favorite book of all time, and I've said it before on the air, is The Stand by Stephen King. Uh, I've read it several times. It scares the heck out of me every time I, I read it. Um, so, and you know how it and ends. And I know how it ends. Yeah. So I still, there's two people in it. There's a, an old lady who's good, and there's a evil person who's bad, and I have to get to the old lady good, that part of the chapter, before I can go to sleep or I'm going to have nightmares all night. I mean, when, you, when you're affected by a book time in and time out, it's a good book. Yep. Excellent. I was just distracted momentarily by a breaking news alert on my phone that uh, legendary defenseman Zdeno Chara has announced his retirement after 24 uh, NHL seasons. For all the sports fans out there, the uh, the big Z is no longer. Uh, my favorite book, 
still to this day, and I can almost memorize it, is The Monster at the End of This Book, starring <laughs> Grover the Muppet. Yeah. Read that to my kids basically every night, and you know, I did all the different voices and the whole bit that Grover does and the emotions, and I just, I, lo- I absolutely love the book. In, in large part because of the connection I have with my kids in reading that book. So sure. that's at the top of my list. Uh, lastly, it is Tim Horton's Smile Cookie Campaign, uh, which is underway until uh, September the 25th. My ultimate cookie is a peanut butter chocolate chip. And I know I'm making you guys <laughs> salivate right now. Yes, you are. <laughs> yes, you are, because I think I said something very similar to Shonup when I before we came off. <laughs> Did you really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's the best of both worlds. You got peanut butter, you got chocolate. It's a cookie. It's uh, th- it's at the top of the heap. Mine's slightly different than I actually just like the peanut butter, like a really good peanut butter. Mm. The chocolate mm-hmm. chip is 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 a nice add, but I my favorite is simply just a really good. My sister baked peanut butter cookie. <laughs> I try and make them myself <laughs> off the off the you know at the back of the recipe. It's not the same. <clears throat> no, my sister's got to come in and do it. And mine is a yes. secret family recipe that has Ooh. been passed down on my mother's side of the family for generations. It's called a kipferlin. It is a uh, it's a type of shortbread, but I, I would tell you the secret ingredient, but then you'd have to marry one of my sisters. Ah, okay. Well, and, and I've offended Paul because <laughs> in all of the years that we've all known each other, he's never had one. I know. She's, before we came on, she says, oh, mine is a secret family recipe that we do every Christmas. I'm going, wait a minute. I've been with you for more than almost 30 Christmases, and you've never brought one of these secret cookies in. They don't wow. They don't last, Paul. Obviously Yes. Yeah. I brought in a box one year, and I ate them on the way into work. <laughs> Well, maybe we'll have a Christmas miracle this year. (laughs) You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The 14th annual Telling Tales Children's Festival is returning to being an in-person event uh, for the first time in a couple of years when it takes place this weekend at Royal Botanical Gardens. This is awesome news. Susan Jasper is the founder and executive director of the Telling Tales Children's Festival and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Susan, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Thanks How does it feel you. to be back in person? Oh, it feels wonderful. We're just longing to connect with families again, and we're so excited about our venue. It's just uh, remarkable to be able to bring stories alive in this world-renowned enchanted rose garden, the Royal Botanical Gardens. Yeah, there's a new location this year at at Hendry Park. Tell us about that. Well, it's it's, uh, spectacular. Uh, There will be five stages uh, and uh, um, tons of uh, activities going on in between. So there's programs from, um, from toddlers right up to teens um there, there you might find puppet shows or um creative workshops for um for the sort of 12 and up there's um <laughs> it's a chance to um bring a few books and uh um, trade them the hamilton literacy council have brought back their um book swap and shop so that's always popular and that the heart of telling tales uh different drummer are there and uh, people love the chance to to get a new book and get it autographed by this um, by an author or illustrator that they're excited about, and they can become you know those books can become lifelong companions. I guess that you know the heart of it is we're just here to really spark that love of reading, 
and uh, um, make it exciting for the whole family. Because the Telling Tales Children's Festival had to do the virtual thing like every other festival or event the last couple of years, we've had a lot of new people arrive in Hamilton over the last couple of years and may have never visited the festival. For those who are listening right now thinking, yeah, i got to take my child to this event, where should they start? How, how should they consume the festival? Well, the best place to start is on the website and explore all of our presenters are featured there. And you can download the map and the schedule just sort of see what, what appeals most to your age, uh, you know, leave lots of room to explore. But uh, I think you'll find, every, you'll find a, a little video with things to bring uh, and, uh, and frequently um, ask questions. But the important thing to know is that this year it is by registration and there's timed entrance. And uh, so you need to sort of pick your spot. Um, Saturday morning is filling up, but right now there's lots of room Saturday afternoon and lots of room on Sunday. It is a rain or shine event. We have lots of tents, and uh, um, uh, um, but uh, bring your umbrella to chase the uh, the rain away. Uh, well, that, that, but, that, that's uh, great information about so the website and uh, and kind of you know booking your spot. Again, that website is tellingtales.org. I do want to ask you about uh, you know the uh, humongousness of the festival because you mentioned five stages. There's thirty plus presenters. This is uh, you have a nature tale zone. This is spread out uh, uh, over the park. It is. It's, it's really exciting programming, and uh, you know, it's just designed for wander and and find the. Uh, and, and while you're wandering, you might run into Munch's Paper Bag Princess. I'm told she'll be there, or the Mad Hatter, or Tinkerbell. Um, there's a story walk to explore, and Royal Botanical Gardens are also bringing all kinds of discovery stations together. So they'll uh, they can take you on tours or give you an activity pack with a bino and send you off. So so this. There's an incredible range, and just uh, you know, find find what speaks to your family and the ages in your family. So if you if you want to get your family excited about reading, or you're already excited about reading, um, this is uh, two magical days for you. Yeah, there's certain something for everyone at the 14th Annual Telling Tales Children's Festival. It runs this weekend at Henry Park at Royal Botanical Gardens. Book your spot now at tellingtales.org. We're in discussion with Susan Jasper, the founder and executive director of the Telling Tales Children's Festival. When you look all the way back to the inaugural festival, how much has changed over the years? Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, at the heart of it, you know, the, just connecting children with these authors and illustrators, you know, that, that has never changed. Our mission has never changed. But we did have, you know, um, uh, 11 years where we were playing at Westfield Heritage Village, and so it is different. Um, we were just experimenting because of our sponsor, Dan um, Laurie of the International Sculpture Collection. We were experimenting with bringing... Um, uh, folks to nature tales anyway and uh, so it's it's exciting to have this move the in the i think what's really changed is um our commitment to virtual programming beyond the festival so we've been working with the school boards and finding that they really enjoy um being able to give um, a lot of students access to our authors so they there will be virtual programming that follows the festival uh monthly and and i think that's um, an exciting development that's come from uh, 
from those pandemic years. <laughs> and if there is something that hasn't changed, and you kind of referenced it, you know, the slogan, open a book, open a world, will apply from here to eternity. Exactly, exactly. It's, um, it's just books can transport us, and, uh, you know, there's just no, just such an amazing, uh, um, rich entertainment uh, which costs nothing. You can go off to the library and, and get all of these books. The festival is free. It's just, uh, and, and in these days, too, uh, I think, you know, fostering imagination is so important, and all of the, the um, social-emotional skills, empathy and compassion. But also we worry about anxiety and depression, and, and reading is, is such a wonderful antidote to that, just like a walk in nature, you know, just stepping into that other world can um, connect you with, with something bigger than yourself and, and, and bring, uh, it, it can, can really help uh, one navigate this world in a, in, a, um, in a fun and entertaining way. Well said. Susan Jasper has been our guest, founder and executive director of the Telling Tales Children's Festival. You can get involved. Head out this weekend. Tellingtales.org is your first stop. And then head over to Henry Park at Royal Botanical Gardens this Saturday and Sunday to enjoy the festivities. Susan, thanks for the time today. Good luck this weekend. Thank you, Rick. And thanks to the Children's Fund and Teach Jamel for for, uh, 14 years of support. Our pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Can you believe that the Caledonia Fair is 150 years old this year? Happened September 29th, 30th, and October 1st. And joining us now to talk about it is Jody Eason, the chair of the marketing committee with the Caledonia Agricultural Society. Jody, good morning. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm not too bad. 150 years? Where's the time gone? Uh, well, you know, it, uh, it's amazing how it, uh, sometimes I look and I, I think we don't look a day over 72, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, uh, we've, we've had uh, many generations and uh, lots of great community support. And most people, I mean, they can't think of what it would be around here without it. Yeah, and it's really a testament to the organization itself, the, the Agricultural Society, all the things that people can see and do at the fair. What is happening this year? Oh, we've got all of the favorites that people love to come and see. Uh, we've got two demolition derbies. We have a World's Finest Shows Midway, lots of farm animals, all kinds of entertainment. We've got two outdoor stages, the grandstand as well as an indoor stage now. So there's Everything you could possibly want, if you put in your, your head what a fall fair looks like, that's exactly what we are. And with it's a, a compact ground so you can make your way around nice and easily. Stuff that's great for families, great for nostalgia, great for anybody. What do you think the big attraction has been about the fair over the years? What, what do people just come back over and over and over again to see? We always like to say that we're the country fair of your memories. And it is that when you, we fit that bill, we give you little bits of, uh, we give you bits of entertainment and all different kinds of entertainment. We show you farm animals, horses and cattle and calves and sheep and everything. And then we've got a community atmosphere. You walk around, you run into people you haven't seen in a long time. You go through the exhibition hall and you see wonderful arts and crafts and, field crops and things that people have produced 
And it's just a beautiful setting on the banks of the Grand River as well. So ours is a ferry that just feels like home. And it's really interactive, too, whether it's the different exhibits, uh, the horse riding demos, there's a kid's zone. There's really fun for the whole family, which is what a fair should be. Yes, we have all kinds of different uh, areas where you can interact. We have contests that come up. If you're there on Sunday afternoon, you know, the highlight of the entire fair is always the pie-eating contest at 4 o'clock. So, you know, (laughs) if you're coming on Sunday, be hungry. And uh, we have other impromptu contests that come up where our buskers are right close and up close to you. We have at either gate, we have Squire McKinnon's barn at one end. So as soon as you walk in, if you go through the east gate, you've got a petting farm. And then through our uh, our main gate, um, we've got the dairy barn right there. And there's uh, a display right there. And there will be some animals there as well. So you can see right off the bat in the stage, right when you go through the gates, the main stage is right in front of you with music or some kind of contest or performance. Yeah, the layout of the grounds is absolutely phenomenal. Talking about the Caledonia Fair celebrating its 150th anniversary this year, September 29th to October 1st. Jody Eason is our guest. Jody is the chair of the marketing committee at the Caledonia Agricultural Society for uh, location, the the map, admission tickets, uh, the whole kit and caboodle and what's happening at the fair. Go online to caledoniafair.ca. There's also, I was on the website earlier this morning, a fall designer bag bingo. What's happening with that? Okay, this is one of our fundraisers that we do throughout the year, and we have some members of our committee who put this fantastic event together, Designer Bag Bingo. It's bingo where the prizes are luxury handbags, and they do not skimp on these bags, and it is (laughs) such a fun night. Who'd have thought that a night where you've got 600 women in a room playing bingo, you could hear a pin drop? (laughs) <laughs> well, is, until someone wins something and then that can exactly drop. <laughs> it is a crazy fun night and it kind of if uh if you had a picture in your mind with the term girls night out this is it and not that we discriminate men are welcome to but it is a uh it's a great fun night uh information for that is also on our website and for most of our events you can get tickets online Excellent stuff, Jody. Thank you for your time today. Looking forward to the fair coming up on September 29th to October 1st. Have a great one. Thank you. You too. As Jody Eason, the chair of the marketing committee at Caledonia Agricultural Society. Check out all the info you need online at caledoniafair.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The world said one last goodbye yesterday to Queen Elizabeth II as the longest-serving British monarch was laid to rest after a funeral ceremony at Westminster Abbey. Today, we are going to learn about some unique things the Queen was interested in during her lifetime. Do you know these facts about Queen Elizabeth II? Estimate might just strike the front. Simenon on the near side. Top trip finishing off well. Estimate has a neck in hand. Oh, Simenon, a royal win in the Gold Cup. Estimate has done it. And the Queen is watching her Philly Estimate win the race 
for which she is meant to present the trophy. Her Majesty the Queen only presents two trophies during Royal Ascot and look at the delight there, the sheer joy. Magnificent scenes, the crowd seeing that as well on the big screen and responding with laughter and with applause. You probably already knew that the Queen adored horses, a lifelong love affair that started when she received a Shetland pony named Peggy when she was just four years old. But did you also know the Queen loved horse racing as well? and read the Racing Post every morning during breakfast. The Queen's horses won 1,800 races and nearly $13 million in prize money, all of it going back to the horses to provide the best care for the animals she so dearly cared for. Queen Elizabeth also attended every edition of the Royal Windsor Horse Show since its inception 79 years ago, including this year's event in May. The Queen's best friend were corpses, these short-legged, um, ill-tempered beasts um, with a with a yap that doesn't appeal to many people in Britain but was absolutely crucial to the Queen. It was corgis who were by her side along with her footmen. We all knew that the Queen loved corgis and she owned more than 30 of them since taking the throne in 1953 but did you know her first corgi was named Susan and was a gift for her 18th birthday? Her corgis have their own room at Buckingham Palace and are spoiled at Christmas with stockings and treats. The Queen took great care of her dogs, which ate freshly made meals prepared by the chef at Buckingham Palace. Queen Elizabeth also had some dorgies, a corgi dashend mix. And now you know. Tomorrow, what happened to Benedict Arnold? We'll fill you in on the life and times of the man known as the turncoat. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.